Um, all right, so we're going to start. Uh, can we get the first slide with the pictures up back here? So I'm going to look. Let's look at these four individuals, and I'm going to see how many we know. We're going to go one by one. So let's go to the top left. Can you raise your hand if you know who the guy on the top left is? Anybody? Top left. Top left. I know, it's tough, right? Yeah, yeah you're going to sit closer to the stage in the future now, aren't you? So top left is a guy by the name of Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold did something about four years ago that no one has ever done before, uh, and that only one or two have actually attempted before him. Alex Honnold climbed uh, El Capitan, which is the largest open-faced rock formation in the United States. You can, it's at um, Yosemite National Park. And it is, uh, I want to say it's over 6,000 feet, just straight up. Now, many people have climbed El Capitan, but Alex Honnold did it in a way that no one's ever done it before. He did a free solo climb of El Capitan, which means no ropes, no cables, just you and the mountain. That's it. Like I said, only two people have attempted it because, well, if you don't succeed, you die. And so... Honnold, uh, three, four years ago, <clears throat> felt this call, somehow, to attempt this climb, and he actually did it. Uh, if you ever want to see this, it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen, it's, and you can get it on Disney+, Plus. it's called Free Solo, but they document his entire summit of, of how he was able to do this. Um, it felt so real that I thought I was going to fall to my own death from my couch, and so... It's, it's a very, very incredible story that they put together. Uh, top right. Can anybody see what that is? Top right. Got on the top right. Do you know who that is? Do you? Yes. Okay. This is Elliot Kipchoge. Kipchoge is a marathon runner from Kenya. And two years ago, he did something that no one has ever done before. Many people have tried, though. Kipchoge ran an entire marathon in Vienna, Austria in under two hours. Okay, he, let me give you a point of reference for how fast that is. That is 26.2 miles at a pace of about four and a half minutes per mile. All right, this was pretty devastating to me because my junior year in high school, I felt like I was in peak physical condition and I ran a mile in five minutes and 47 seconds. And I felt really proud of that. Still to this day, I talk about the good old days when I could run a mile in five minutes and 47 seconds. This guy ran a mile in four minutes and 32 seconds, 26 times in a row. And I felt really low when I heard that. No one else has ever run a marathon in under two hours. Uh, bottom right, surely people know who this is. Yeah, okay. For those of you who can see it, that's Neil Armstrong. You know who that is? Okay. Nobody? Really? Seriously? Let's go back to school, guys. Spring break's only been a week. So, uh, so Neil Armstrong, we know his story, right? First man on the moon, unless you're a conspiracy theorist, and then it was nobody. But uh, went to a place that no man had gone before at that point. And then bottom left, I will be really impressed if you can get this one. Anybody? That is John Paul Scott. Now, aside from the feat of having three first names... He did something else. Uh, John Paul Scott, if you can see, it's tough to sell, and, and this is the worst of all the four pictures that I have, 
And the main reason for that is because this picture was taken like 70 years ago. That is a mugshot. John Paul Scott uh, was a was a guest of this place called Alcatraz Island. And John Paul Scott was a prisoner in Alcatraz Island. He is the only man ever to successfully escape from Alcatraz Island prison, which at the time was the top maximum security prison that existed. And here's why. Not only was it incredibly well guarded, but it was an island where in order to get off that island, you had to swim a minimum of two miles in order to get to the next nearest shore. Most of the people who got out of the prison would then have to swim across the bay and they would drown because not only was it two miles, but the water there in San Francisco Bay is really cold. And so most people wouldn't make it. John Paul Scott's the only one to ever get out of the prison, dive into the water and swim to shore. And uh, story after this goes, he gets to shore. He is so exhausted and hypothermic that he lays on the shore where two teenage boys who were under the Golden Gate Bridge saw him get on. They didn't know who he was, but they did see the prison suit, so they called the police. He couldn't move because of how tired and cold he was, so the police picked him up and promptly took him back to Alcatraz Island where he went back. However, because he did get to shore, it technically counts as a successful escape attempt. No one else has ever done it. No one else ever will do it because now the prison is a museum, basically. Who doesn't want to see a prison for fun? We will soon. So here's here's what these people have in common. Here's what they have in common. We live in a world and a culture and a society. If you want to do something in the world that no one has ever accomplished before, you have to be a little crazy. You do. And if you hear stories about some of these people, not only do they have a gift for doing what they do uh, or what they did, But they're a little crazy in their training regimens and and how they interact with people because it just consumes them. Because to go to these areas, to do something that no one has ever done before, we have to be willing to be a little bit crazy and a little bit willing to go above and beyond. And that's where we find ourselves in John chapter 11. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. I'm going to kind of paraphrase the story a little bit. So Jesus is with his disciples and a messenger comes to Jesus while he's with his disciples. They say, Jesus, Mary and Martha sent me, your friend Lazarus, their brother, he's sick and they need you to come and heal him. Well, Jesus' first response is, well, to just sit and wait. It sounds like he's not going to go. And so They think, okay, it's weird that Jesus isn't going to help his friend, but because of where Lazarus lives, which is just outside of Jerusalem, there had been, uh, the Pharisees had tried to kill Jesus a couple times leading up to this. And so they're thinking, okay, we get it. Like you got to protect yourself, right? So you you can't go visit. Well, a couple days later, Jesus says, let's go to Lazarus because he's fallen asleep. And they're thinking, okay, one, that's crazy to go to see Lazarus right now because, well, and they even say, Jesus, if he's asleep, isn't that good? Like he's sick, you need rest, right? So this, his body's healing. And in addition to that, they say, Jesus, if you go to him, you know, you're going to go through Jerusalem. They literally tried to kill you just a few days ago. You don't think they've forgotten about that? So what, why would we go? And Jesus says plainly, look, Lazarus is dead. And because of how this has all played out, I'm really glad that it's happened this way. 
because now you're going to believe. And as he starts heading down the road, one of his disciples says, hey, let's go with him. They really thought Jesus was going to not only visit this dead person, but he was probably going to die on his way. The Pharisees would seize him and kill him. And they say, hey, let's go and die with him. Some pretty devout disciples, are they not? And as Jesus begins approaching, Martha runs toward Jesus. Now, you might know it if, you, if you've read scripture, if you've read the stories. Jesus uh, has a unique relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In Luke chapter 10, we read about the story of Mary and Martha. Many of you might know it. Uh, Jesus is sitting and, and talking and teaching in, in their home. And Mary is just sitting right at the feet of Jesus where Martha is running around. She's cooking food. She's cleaning. She's getting everything ready. She gets upset with her sister and says, Jesus, can you tell my sister to help me? I'm doing all this work. She's doing nothing. And Jesus says, but Mary has found her true heart's desire. That's not going to be taken from her. Jesus is not just a teacher to these people. He is a friend. He's been to their home. He's eaten. He might have even spent the night in, in a guest room. So he has a true relationship. It's not just this, hey, we met once. He, these are true friends. And so Martha sees Jesus out in the distance coming down the road. And Martha runs out to meet him. And she throws herself into his arms. And as she's holding him, Martha says this, Jesus if only you had been here, then you could have prevented my brother from dying. And, you know, for the longest time, um, I, I would read this and I would think of this, uh, I think of Martha as this person who's very just devastated. You know, hey, maybe if Jesus had been able to be here, then, then my brother could have survived. And the more I read the story and thought about their relationship, the more I realized, I don't know it was that Martha necessarily said this from a place of sadness. I think she was angry. Because when you think about it from her perspective, Mary and Martha, they see Lazarus is sick, he's on the bed. They take the messenger and say, go tell Jesus to come here. We need him, we need him to save our brother. The messenger comes. When the messenger delivers the message, he doesn't go off and do his own thing. The messenger then comes back to Mary and Martha and deliver the news, Jesus isn't coming. And so they hear about our friend who has the power to save our brother just said no. Then he dies. Then Jesus shows up. If I'm Mary and Martha, I'm a little angry because someone who had the ability to help, someone who had the ability to save chose not to and then chose to show up, to show up after this horrible thing had happened. And in their minds, they don't know what's coming after this. So they don't realize that Jesus may actually resurrect their brother. They don't know. And so that, I like to think they say it from a place of anger. God, if you had shown up in this moment in my life, then maybe my life wouldn't be where it is right now. And I wonder how many of us have felt that way at some point. I wonder how many of us Feel that way right now. Mary comes out eventually and, and says something pretty similar. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And they're hurt, they're upset, but Jesus says this to Martha. He said, I tell you the truth, your brother will live again. Now, Martha had been around Jesus. He, she'd heard his teaching enough that she said, yes, Jesus, I know. On the last day, Lazarus will 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 come back to life at the resurrection just like all of those who follow you. 
And Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. This is a big, big statement. Here's why. Here are the I am statements that we have covered up to this point that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. Now, when you look at the list of these things, what you'll find in this list is that all of them are tangible things. That, that there are things that we live on a daily basis with, and maybe not the good shepherd. We talked some about that last week, but the people back then, that would have been very familiar to them. They see these on almost a daily basis in their everyday life. They are needed for their sustenance. However, no one has ever seen resurrection before. So for his disciples who are hearing this for the first time, okay, well, these things might make sense. Light, gate, door, good shepherd, bread. Okay, resurrection? Are you kidding? That, that, that is this hot take of all hot takes. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Resurrection, they knew the word. They didn't think it really existed. They thought, well, that's going to come at the last day. And Jesus said, no, I am that resurrection right here and now. And after he talks with Mary and Martha, after he says this, he sees how upset the two of them are. And he said, take me to where you've buried him. And they begin going and they see how upset Martha is. They see how upset Mary is. They see how upset the friends and the family are. In John chapter 11, verse 35, we arrive at the shortest verse in all of Scripture. As many of you already know, for those of you who grew up at, uh, in Bible classes or schools where you were required to cite a memory verse when they called on you and you hadn't learned a new one, you went with John eleven thirty five, 35, which says, Jesus wept. If, if this is the first time you're hearing it, congratulations, you've memorized a Bible verse for the very first time. And, you know, I've listened to people talk about this concept of Jesus weeping, that, that God, Jesus, who's both fully God and fully man, by him crying, it shows that Jesus is, yes, fully man, that he learned how to suffer in those moments. And I'm not going to say that that take is wrong. I'm not going to say that's incorrect or it's invalid. But here's the part that blows my mind. Jesus just gets done telling Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and, and the life. Your brother will live again and he who believes in me will never truly die. And then says, take me to him. And as he's going, he weeps. And we know the end of the story. There are people who don't believe in God who know the end of this story. There are ministries and, and buildings and, and orphanages and hospitals called, that are named after Lazarus because he was brought back. So how is this? It just blows my mind. Why weep when you know you're going to bring him back? It's like, uh, like three years ago, I was at... I was at my house and, and I was watching, we were watching TV and my son Gatlin, who at the time was like four, he said, dad, 
Dad, let's watch a movie. What, what's a movie that you used to watch as a kid? And one of the great things about Disney Plus is that they show all the Disney movies that I grew up on. And, uh, well, it's been good and bad because I discovered some of the movies I grew up on and thought were great are actually just horrible. They're just, they're not like inappropriate. They're just dumb, just in general. But there was one movie that I saw and he had started taking an interest in basketball. And so I wanted to introduce him to a movie that I thought was just incredible. It's called Air Bud. All right. Who's seen Air Bud? Most realistic movie you'll ever see. Okay. It's about a dog that plays basketball. That's how real it is. And there is a moment in Air Bud that still, like when I watch it with kids these days, like it still happens where people will still start crying. Even if you see the movie, they'll start because the main character, Josh, has a dog, Buddy, whom he kind of found as a stray at that time and he ends up adopting it. Well, as the story goes, uh, Buddy is a really good basketball player and, well, as a part of this, the original owner of Buddy finds the dog, sees how talented the dog is, and uh, tries to reclaim the dog. And so Josh, in an effort to keep him safe, keep his dog safe from this bad owner who mistreated him, decides to go and drop the dog off in a very far away place and then run off. Now, as this scene starts to approach, I got up from the couch and I went into the kitchen to grab a snack. I started talking to my wife or one of my kids, I can't remember, and I'm talking. And, and as I'm talking to them, my son, who's four, runs into the kitchen, like bawling, crying, like beside himself. I first thought he had like fallen on his head. He bumps his head all the time. And so I was like, okay, how did he bump his head again? And he runs in and he throws himself in his arms. You know, normally when a kid gets hurt, they're holding the, you know, the body part that they've hurt, right? He's not doing that. He is just so distraught. And I look, I so, hey, what, what's wrong? What, what happened? And he is just losing it because as the kid leaves, as Josh leaves his dog buddy on the island, you can see the boat is pulling away with Josh on it and the dog is just stuck on the island. And Buddy is just, or Josh's tears are just streaming down his eyes and Buddy has this puppy dog look face, like why would you do this to me? Uh, I thought you were a good owner, turns out you're worse than the other one kind of look that dogs make sometimes. Now, I mean, it never bothered me that much. Because I've also got a dog who I brought him up on stage, and I, I mentioned I have a love-hate relationship with this dog. Okay, last night this dog, uh, I, we came home to find that that dog had spread bacon grease all over my floor and then pooped in my kid's room. Okay, I'm like, can I take the Josh method and just leave him on an island and just take off? Like, not that I would ever do that, but like I'm annoyed. But like these kids, you know, kids value these animals so much, and my son is just losing it. Well, I never understood why Jesus would do this. I never understood why weep when you're going to bring him back. Because if I'm Jesus, I'm going up to those people and saying, hey, I got this guy. Stop crying. I'm going to bring him back from the dead. No, you don't believe me? Okay, come watch. It's going to happen. I'm not crying with them. Because I know it's going to get better. And just like, so I take my son. I say, hey, let's sit down on the couch. Because I think it's going to get better. Because you know what every kid movie has in common? The good guys win. And the bad guy's loose. And so, you know, it's going to get better. And I never understood it because I'm like, Jesus, just tell him. Why, why are you sitting there and weeping when you know you're going to fix all this? And as I walked, as I walked through this story, 
throughout this week, there's only one conclusion that I could come to as to why Jesus chose to do that after saying, I am the embodiment of resurrection and living again. And part of this can connect with uh, a priest and professor by the name of Samuel Wells. Samuel Wells wrote a book a few years ago called A Nazareth Manifesto. And the entire book is centered on this one particular point. He said, most scholars believe that in a, uh, most scholars believe that Jesus began his ministry about at the age of 30. Most scholars can also agree based on John's gospel and how he talks about Passover feasts that Jesus' ministry lasted about three years. So Jesus lived to the age of 33. And so Wells talks about, he said, one of the things that we see Uh, We usually look to scripture to find our lessons, and sometimes, on every once in a while, what scripture doesn't say is what explains some of our answers. And so, if you look at the first 30 years of Jesus' life, other than a short little story in Luke chapter 2, we have basically nothing about the life of Jesus before his ministry begins at the age of 30. Like, nothing. And so he said, there's four ways... You can advocate for people. There's four ways to do ministry, four ways to love people. Um, That should be the next slide. Can we get that up there? So you have four options of how you go about doing this. You can do for, you can do with, you can be for, or you can be with. And he said, let me start, Wells says, let me start by saying all four of those things are important. Okay? You can, doing things for others is important. Doing things alongside others is important. Being and advocating for people, especially the powerless, super important. Being with, very important. But he said, here's what I arrive at. The fact that 90% of Jesus' life, we have no record of doing for, doing with, or being for. Because we don't have anything. But we do know that because he grew up where he grew up, with the family he had, and the culture he was in, and the way he spoke to them, that 90% of Jesus' life was spent being with. And that is so difficult to do. But what Wells goes on to say is the most valuable ministry that any of us can do is not fixing people's problems. It's not uh, doing things for them. It's not even necessarily advocating for them. It's simply being with them. And I can't help but look and think perhaps the reason Jesus wept isn't because he wanted to show or, or, um, or, or show this special level of divinity and humanity all at the same time. Perhaps what he wanted to do was to simply be with people in their suffering. And I wonder how many of us who are suffering or have suffered, that suffering seems so hard because we refuse to acknowledge that Jesus might be going through it with us. Job chapter 2 is one of the most incredible displays of friendship we ever see in Scripture. And it gets blown over because of the story of Job. If you don't know the story of Job, it's, um, it's, pretty, <laughs> it's pretty sad. Um, Job is this hardworking, devout, righteous man. Loves God, loves his family. Serves the community, uh, loves the people within it, very great reputation. 
And uh, God and Satan have this back and forth discussion. And God said, have you ever witnessed my servant Job? How devout, how righteous he is. And Satan says, I can change that. Give it to me. I can make all of that change. So it starts off by being God said, okay, you can, you can, uh, you can take away stuff, but don't touch him. Satan says, okay. A bunch of enemies come. They take all his livestock, all his cattle. They uh, kill his servants. They burn his crops, burn his fields. And then around the same time, um, a strong wind comes and causes one of the homes that he has had built for his children to cave in. And all of his children were in the house. It killed every last one of them. And then Satan goes back and he said, give me another chance. Let, let me, you know, he's like this because, well, he still has his health. And God says, okay, you can hurt him, but don't kill him. Satan says, I can work with that. He gets boils, he gets scars, he gets all sorts of different types of ailments. Um, and the only thing he's really left with, if we're being honest, is um, his wife, who uh, her, her advice to Job after he'd lost his health, his family, his wealth, was curse God and die. Real Proverbs 31 lady we're talking about here. And here's the part that just impresses me the most about friendship. Job chapter 2, starting in verse 11. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their, name were, their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. Get this, when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights, and no one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. How many of us have friends who would sit in silence with us for seven days and not say a word? How many of us think we are that friend who could do that? Not me. That's a friend right there. And many of you uh, might know a little bit about my wife's story. You see, uh, my wife's story is one that, that has some difficulty that took place in it. Many of you know that she was married before uh, we met and we got together. And that man had uh, a brain aneurysm and he passed. Ashley was 27, 28 when she became a widow with a seven-year-old daughter and a two-year-old daughter. And this was something that you never wish on anybody, right? And during that time, I've asked her about a number of things during our marriage and our relationship, about what is good to do in those moments of when people are truly hurting. And I asked her this because we're good Church of Christers, right? What do we do when someone's going through something? We make them a casserole, right? That'll fix it. And I asked her, I said, you know, who all brought you food? She said, I don't remember. I said, okay. Who is the, which one had the best flavors? Which one was really tasty? I don't remember. Who brought words of comfort? You know, she said this. She said, I don't remember who made me food. Um, there was a wake. A lot of people went to it. 
some really horrible things to say to a woman who's grieving her lost husband was said. Uh, not on purpose, they meant well. But some tough things were said. But she said, there was no one who said anything that helped. No one. No one said a word that thought, oh, this made it better. Now I'm totally going to forget that this happened. None of those. She didn't remember a whole lot of what was said at the funeral. She didn't remember much of who was at the funeral. But there's one scene in this that she said, I'll never forget it. You see, the final night that her late husband was, was still alive, she knew at that point. The doctors already said, there's nothing we can do. And he's going to pass. And so Ashley went into a room by herself. And she got down on her hands and knees and she wept. Like she's never wept before. And she went into that private room because she didn't want people patting her on the back. She didn't want people telling her it's going to be okay. She didn't want people to tell her, hey, you're going to get through this. Because that doesn't bring, that doesn't fix the situation. But what she does remember is this. There were three women who were part of her church family at that time. They walked into that room. They saw her weeping. And they laid down on the floor next to her and wept with her. They laid beside her. They laid above her. They didn't pray. They didn't tell her it's going to be okay. They just were with her. And she will tell you still to this day, I remember that more than anything that anyone else did. There are two things I hope you take away from this, but I want to read this. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 6. John says this, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. There's two things I hope you take away from this. And part of it's going to depend on what season of life you're in right now. There's part of it is if you are in a season where maybe for starters, you're not really sure who God is, who Jesus Christ is. You want to have more talks about that. But in addition, if you're in a season of life where you are hurting and you're hurting deep, there's some really tough stuff going on in your story. Then I hope you hear that Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life, that I will make all things new. I will heal your suffering and I will wipe away all your tears. We serve a God who loves us enough to actually fix our problems. Jesus is the only one who could have gone to my wife and said, your husband will rise again, and he will. That's going to happen. But perhaps you're in the other boat. Perhaps life's actually going pretty well for you. 
and, and things are, are going okay. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Just do what Jesus did. It doesn't take some grand message. It doesn't take the perfect prayer. It doesn't take the extra long hug or the casserole that you are famous for. To find people who are in their suffering and simply be with them during it and through it. That's it. It is so hard, isn't it? Wouldn't it be better if we made food? Wouldn't that work? Maybe at least DoorDash it, right? But no, Jesus is sitting here saying, I can fix this, and there is no disciple who could have. And so Jesus is inviting us to simply be with people in their suffering. If those people need something, they'll let you know. Because those three women who wept with my wife, they were the ones she called as time went on too. So in this time, our prayer team is going to head to the back. Our praise team is going to come out on stage. And I'm going to invite you to do one of two things if you want. If you want to just stay in your seat during this, you're welcome to. And if you want to go to the back and say, I want to know more about this God who redeems, who resurrects, who wipes away every tear. These people can talk to you about it and they can pray with you through it. But if not, perhaps this is an opportunity for you to just pray right there in your seat in this time. And perhaps you want to go to the back and pray on behalf of someone that you plan on being with in their suffering, regardless of what that looks like. Because life is not easy. And Jesus entered into these sufferings and these people in the back are more than willing to do the same with you to hold you, to cry with you, and not fix it, but love you through that. And if you want to go on behalf of someone else or go on your own to find Jesus in these deep, difficult, suffering moments, you're invited to do that now as we stand and sing this next song.